Welcome to the Social Lights Podcast with Kate Vandervoort, where I interview changemakers and innovators on how they connect with their tribe on social media. Brought to you by Social Mediology. So welcome everyone to the podcast. I'm here today with Angie Abdilla, the founder and CEO of Old Ways New. And I'm really excited to be interviewing Angie today. First, I would really like to pay respects to all elders, past and present. I have a very deep respect and reverence for the history and the culture of our country and of Indigenous cultures around the world. And I'd like to say that at the beginning of this podcast. But when I first heard about Angie and her work, it was described to me as bringing Indigenous wisdom into artificial intelligence. And Angie doesn't know this, but it really sparked where this podcast came from because I have a very deep interest in the intersection between humanity and spirituality and technology. And when our mutual connection mentioned Angie's work, I had goosebumps. And that's really been the measure, I guess, for who I want to interview on this podcast is the stories and the people and the work that gives me goosebumps. And I'm fascinated to speak with you today and learn more about the amazing work that you're doing. So after that very long introduction, welcome, Angie. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Great to be here too. So let's get started with what is it that lights you up? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> coffee and usually my daughter being very slow to get moving (laughs) but if I'm in my flow then usually my day starts with meditation and it's usually in those moments that um, some strong visions or downloads happen which set me up for how I'm going to hold myself and others that are in the company and the work that we do. It's always the best way to start the day. I missed my morning meditation a couple of weeks ago and crashed the car on that day. And that was a very big reminder about how important that touchstone is in the morning to setting up the day for any kind of flow and presence. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So tell us a little bit about your journey, Angie, up to launching Old Ways New. So before you were doing what you're doing now, tell us a bit about your background. So I was in the film industry for about 15 years as a writer, director, producer, predominantly a director, and working in documentary for all of that and then a little stint in TV. And I guess what I was really interested in was the, what I saw was a bit of a shift in the way that storytelling was, was, there was a shift in the way that I was seeing storytelling changing and it was because of technology and this was like you know 20 years ago I guess where the even longer when the first websites were I remember seeing the very first website it was actually a for me it was a Russian artist who and it it was so exploratory and experiential and you know nothing to the types of sort of formulaic things that we we know to be websites now So it was websites and then it was also transmedia storytelling and then, you know, telling web content, you know. I mean, we didn't even call it content back then. It was, and so, you know, over time I was seeing these really quite significant shifts in the way that story was being shaped by the technology, the tools in which we 
being adopted by the industry. Various different industries and sectors even kind of propping up because of the technology facilitating storytelling. And so I was really interested in that. I was really fascinated that technology could be so powerful that it could change the way we tell stories and we engage with stories. And, you know, coming from a film background, I was, you know, and I went to film school then also did a Bachelor of Arts in Communications and, you know, then went on to doing postgrad studies at the Australian Film and Television and Art Radio School. And so I was really, you know, I was, that was my world, storytelling and the tools and techniques for really engaging storytelling was still what really kind of is the backbone to how I see the world and how the work that we do, even though it may not seem like it. I think um, there was a period where I noticed that there was, well, I, I found an op- there was an opportunity where I was asked to work with this new initiative called the Indigenous Digital Excellence Initiative, part of the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence. And I was really intrigued that this, by the process, they were, it wasn't a, there was no position description, there was an expression of interest and they were looking for people that had certain qualities and I was intrigued by that but this is different and so I was really intrigued and I didn't really know much about technology at all but I learned a lot in those years and in that role I ended up becoming the director of that IDX initiative but in that role I was asked to explore what I thought were going to be the most important new emerging technologies that could really shape the way that would be important in our world and so this was back in 2013, 14. Back then, I was really interested in robotics, 3D printing, and gamification. So, MIT Scratch, which is a program for you know, learning how to code and gamification. And they certainly weren't the only ones that I explored, but I thought that those might be really important and relevant for our community. And so, I then set about the quite complex task of designing a prototype course to introduce the concepts of code in robotics but what I wanted to do was to you know back then there was a whole bunch of different technology corporations who were really interested in working partnering with us and what I sensed though was that they were really interested in owning it saying this is how we introduce robotics to kids or to people and this is the formula this is the process and we know what to do and so just organize getting the Aboriginal kids here and we'll have all of our photographers here and branding and, you know. So I kind of smelled around just like, oh, you know what? No, we're not going to do that. We have the funding and the opportunity here to actually do it our way and for it to be Indigenous-led and to, for it to have a strong cultural foundation. And so what I did was I looked for the alignment and thought what we need is anybody that's Aboriginal that's worked with technology to be to have it like a, a peer support network. And then we need to find a cultural alignment to the process of introducing code and concepts of robotics. And so it took me a long time to work out what the hell is that? And I explored Indigenous science and systems thinking and a whole bunch of different ways that we could maybe facilitate that connection. And what it came back to was tracking country because navigating time and space in robotics is one of the fundamental building blocks for understanding robotics you know you have a 
a series of code or an algorithm and, and you program that robot to move through time and space. And so I thought about that conceptually. Well, how does that exist within a, for us culturally? And that's where I found the alignment and talked about the protocols of tracking, you know, moving through country and use those cultural analogies and or cultural knowledges, traditional knowledges to as a bridging language and bridging the and building up that cultural resilience while also building in new skills and new ways of understanding a different realm. So in this particular context, it was robotics. So the whole course developed from that premise and it was really successful. All the kids were like so engaged and really excited and they went on to continue working in robotics and the course is still running now, like like six years later. So when I left, I was really interested to then explore, well, like having a culturally grounded way of introducing the concepts of code and technology to Aboriginal kids and communities is really important. But then there's something else that's going on here. And I think what happened was working with my uncle and exploring, you know, the talking to him about, you know, this experience, he introduced me to this cultural experience of pattern thinking. It's not even cultural experiences, cultural knowledge, traditional knowledge. So pattern thinking from an Indigenous perspective is a way of understanding the interrelationship and interconnection of all things in our world. And so I thought, wow, that's powerful and that's the alignment that I can see. We can't, we don't need to just have access to technology. We can lead the way that we are thinking about conceptually designing and making technology, new emerging technologies, because on a systems level, there's a far more complex and integrated way for technology to evolve. And so I wrote a research paper on that with a roboticist exploring the concept of pattern thinking and pattern recognition in the context of robotics and new emerging technologies and in particular AI. And so that research paper was then presented at the UN the United Nations Declaration Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues and then found the company came from that point, sitting around with elders from around the world, you know, Indigenous leaders, amazing people at the UN talking about this, how pattern thinking, pattern recognition can inform technology to be more socially and environmentally sustainable. And they, so the company really was only came about because of the, we knew that it needed to be, it needed to support the the company needed, first of all, to model what we wanted to see in the world, which so we needed to be economically independent. So it wasn't a not-for-profit. We needed to be, we needed to, yeah. So the whole company has evolved from this really strong cultural foundation and it, you know, it, could have been, it could have been a book, could have been an initiative, could have been a number of things, but it, it was, yeah, it became a company because of the economic independence that we also need. So tell me about the vision for Old Ways New and that's an amazing way to, you know, to have this work come about that thank you for sharing that lead up to there because it seems like the natural next step. So tell us about the vision for Old Ways New. Yeah, so the really it's not wavered since that moment when we were sitting around the diner in New York, at, you know, with those Indigenous elders and leaders it was all has always been about how um, exploring and implementing ways for us to use our indigenous knowledges and knowledge systems to inform emerging new emerging technologies. That's it. And what does that look like as a tangible service or offering? What impact does that make? Yeah. 
So, well, I mean, that has continued to shift and grow and change. But I guess before I get into that, the reason, so there's the vision and then there's the why. So why we're doing this is because we want Indigenous, we believe that we have capacity if we are leading the technology revolution then we have the capacity to have Indigenous autonomy and Indigenous agency and Indigenous autonomy. And so how we do that? <laughs> so we have two fat, two arms to the company. We have a service arm to the company, a consulting arm, and then we have an R&D arm. And so the R&D arm is really where the work, the, the real work happens, so that's the research work. And then now we're moving into the actual, um, the more of the development side of that work and so what underpins all of this is indigenous ai and so that's come over the last year i would say we've been writing as i mentioned you know this first research paper talked very specifically about robotics and ai in the context of pattern thinking and pattern recognition and absolute so it's been there but the ability for us to start getting clearer as to what that is that's really happened in the last year and so Indigenous AI is the thing that pulls it all together and it's many different things. Indigenous AI is different for different peoples. It's something that we've been sharing with other Indigenous technologists from around the globe in partnership with a number of other different universities, MIT, Oxford and Concordia University and our company brought together 40 Indigenous technologists early this year from to explore what Indigenous protocols are and how they can um, shape and inform Indigenous AI. And so, you know, from the Maoris to the Canadian First Nation mob to Turtle Island mob to from our mob that I brought over from here in Australia and others, like the Hawaiians, the First Nations Hawaiians, we all had different ways of understanding what Indigenous AI is and could be into the future. Because... And that makes total sense, right, because we all have different relations. We have got very similar things that unite us, but we all have different relationships to country and different knowledges that come from that. So that's the R&D arm, and the whole intent of the R&D arm is to be able to work with mob on country, first and foremost, only when we're invited in, when, and secondly, you know, working with traditional owners and custodians and elders from those communities who then are able to identify the problem, not non-Indigenous people coming in and saying, these are your problems and we're going to fix them. It's actually the community who identify the problem. And then in this two-way working relationship, a two-way learning, our skills and expertise as a company and their traditional knowledges and relationship to country can be pulled together to design the solution for that problem, that local context with a technology outcome. That in the future could become a repeatable model that then the community could have a return on investment. Maybe not. It just really depends on the context and the needs of the community, the desires and aspirations of that community. And then the other arm of the company, the consulting arm, which makes the money to support that work we work typically in two main sectors, the built environment and the cultural sector. In the cultural sector, we look, we're look we looking at how we can, through this decolonization movement within cultural institutions, we're looking at how to redesign digital ecosystems that can support the recoding of Indigenous objects and artefacts and knowledges in a system that is more reflective of an Indigenous knowledge system. 
and then design those digital ecosystems to to enable those um, collections to have far more complexity and resonance and interrelationship and connection both internally and externally for their for their clients for their audiences so that's some really interesting big work that's going on now and it's really taking shape and then in the built environment we work on essentially a much deeper nuanced relationship to placemaking so we work with designers so architects and landscape architects and within the public domain on large-scale urban renewal projects essentially we work with sustainability we work with retail we work with all of these various different fact different entities that typically come together as a consortium on these large-scale urban renewal projects and where we center ourselves in the middle of those players or those not players those service providers so then we can understand bring to the fore what the relationship of country is to that particular context and how we can then develop key concepts for the entire precinct to then be centered on and then various different strategies and activities that can then infiltrate the deliverables that we are producing for those very big big design and construction projects so it enables is a much more integrated and holistic response design response that has the the needs of country embedded within it's not this tokenistic oh yeah we'll get an aboriginal artist or designer to whack on some indigenous design at the on the facade of the building it's developed as part of the foundational and it emanates and permeates throughout every aspect of the both through the conceptual and the practical outcome. I've got so many questions in my head after that's an amazing description of what you do and I'm trying to articulate this this is a a little off topic but one of the struggles that I sometimes have in this space I love that what you're talking about is that it's about this coming from and being informed by and developed by the beneficiaries of your technology not that it's an external you know solution that's been because I think we've seen obviously way too much of that here and overseas I guess the question is how does that impact is that then about having products that you can sell to or engage non-indigenous stakeholders because I imagine like me that as a non-indigenous person when I hear the work that you're doing I'm really inspired by that and I think wow what how can I be involved in that or is there a place for that so how is that going to be navigated as you move forward because I imagine that you have companies all the time that may have done the tokenistic solutions and interventions if you like in the past who are really interested in a different way of doing that how do you navigate that yeah yeah, you know it's really tricky and it's different all the time and so that's why it's really like the lead time for us to develop work is you know is quite onerous but we have a really clear mandate. You know, we're not interested in growth like other companies are. We are interested in sustainability, but from a very different perspective. You know, it's not sustainability in the kind of Western gammon sense. Like, it's sustainability from an Indigenous perspective is the inherent interconnection of both social and environmental sustainability. It's the same thing. And so that also extends to the way that we run the company and everything, all the decisions we make. And so if the relationships aren't there and aren't strong in the first place, nothing moves, nothing grows. Nothing, there's, so it's really 
always it comes back to relationships 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 process process and that's tricky because you know formula and process are you know really dominate the way we our i guess the service sector and how we um, and to provide services and goods so what we find is that there's definitely a tension there's a bit of a struggle there sometimes for our clients who really want to engage really want to work with us and they don't know how because we can't fit neatly in a box and we just like to communicate that straight up front you know we don't fit in boxes like what we do is we work with you in ways that can ensure that the process that we're going to bring you along the process and then the outcome to enable a really great outcome so the not because we're it's you know we're doing good for good sakes it's just because it's better so there's nothing altruistic really in what we do we're doing it because it's better and of course we're doing it because we you know there's great benefit for our community you know there's just an inherent belief that our community have this knowledge and it's embedded within them and we have the capacity it's just about creating opportunities and spaces and instead of you know saying well yeah here's a graphic design position for you to create some artwork and for us to then use however we want but those and that's not a respectful way of engaging aboriginal people we're not talking about jobs for on a construction site we're talking about in the context of construction that whoever is going to be leading that the design and like we want to create opportunities for thought leadership for our old ways to be able to be respected and regarded and for different ways to of from our old ways to inform better solutions better strategic design and technology outcomes solutions and outcomes and so yeah it's not easy but it's happening we are creating those inroads and sometimes it's a matter of just bringing in different people that it's often we engage in with leadership otherwise it doesn't permeate we need to always engage on that level and we typically only engage with in contexts where there's multiple different people in the room so then we can see where the opportunities are for the cross collaboration and multidisciplinary approaches that are required when working outside of these siloed ways that western knowledges exist within very different way of working so we try to keep it simple though by <laughs> trying to find those opportunities where we can say look this is the solution and we'll craft this work in this way we'll develop an urban design framework for you and it, but it will be better it will be far more nuanced and it will include a range of other different insights and inputs that you will never get from you know your typical service provider because their process will be formulaic it'll be the same process that they've developed that could be utilized in northern europe in china and here and is expected to somehow resonate and reflect the context of this place you know it doesn't make sense so that's why we have some really strong working relationships within the built environment because people are starting to get it I guess the other area that we really we're starting to work more and more in is the um, smart cities, and I'm really reluctant to even say those words, but because we don't work in the typical way that people typically do within smart cities. But what we're looking at is how the experience and the insights and the different relationships that we've brokered within the large urban renewal. 
projects can then, like so through you know, developing a much more nuanced relationship to placemaking and design, and then thinking, okay, within the broader context of the urban precinct, how then, what is the digital ecosystem and what is, how can we push the boundaries within the realm of smart cities to not, to ensure that data is not robbed from people and extracted to then use the you know individual citizens as pawns but how can we think about citizens and their data to and the utilization of their data to facilitate social cultural and economic well-being and growth for also for both communities and place so that is possible and that's what we're now doing is looking at what are those types of digitally inclusive strategies that can be foundational to those really large precinct precinct design and development so that communities are and their needs and country and its need are put at the centre. And I love what you say on your website, you know, we're dreaming up and leading the revolution to a new digital world. And I think that's a beautiful statement that encapsulates everything that you've shared here. And can I just finish off with one last question? When you, I'm just interested in how you use technology in your business to connect with your community or your stakeholders, or it sounds like you have an amazing network globally of Indigenous innovators and change makers in this space. How do you all communicate and connect and develop these concepts together? A lot of it's through Zoom. A lot of it is through really just using the right tool for the right context. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited by all sorts of new technology, but I'm also super critical of it as well. Like I'm constructively critical of it, and so I'm really mindful about the types of tools that we engage with and that we support and advocate for so i don't use facebook i hate to say i do use instagram even though it's owned by facebook now and i'm thinking very you know thinking about that but we you know there's different levels of capability in communities and so we use the right tool for the right context you know there's no use in kind of foisting technology onto people or communities if it doesn't make sense or if it doesn't resonate so it's really different internally within our team we use slack as an internal communication tool but we try and keep it really simple you know because we certainly don't engage with technology for technology's sake we're looking at technology in the broadest and we're interested in technology from a much more i guess longitudinal perspective thinking about the spectrum of technology is far and the history of technology is far deeper and greater than zeros and ones we're interested in the technology of, you know, this pen or bush medicine or, you know, the, yeah, a fish trap or, you know, so that's what really interests me and what really inspires me and what really I come back to is what is, you know, the thousands and thousands and thousands of years of knowledge and technologies that are so sophisticated that often you can trip right over them if you haven't got the eye because they're so inherently in tune with country and that's what a lot of you know so-called settlers did they literally tripped over and didn't even know what was in front of them because there was you know an incredible complex sophisticated fish trap on you know they wouldn't even grasp what that was 
they didn't even grasp what that was back then, you know. And so, so yeah, that's what's really I always end up going back to is you know, there's country with the knowledges of our old people and the, that sophistication of those knowledges have been so in tune with this country, you know, the driest continent on this earth. And this country has sustained us, the oldest living continuum of people and culture since time immemorial. That's profound. If people could only just really let that sink in, of course there's deep, sophisticated knowledges in this place and in this in our people. Of course it's going to be better. If I can ask one more question. So one of the things that I look a lot at is the shadow side of social media and the impact that that has on humanity and on people and individuals because I think we tend to look at that and I'm a social media marketer by training and trade so I do that day to day but I'm very conscious of the negative impacts of that and I see so much of the positivity which I really that's where I focus my work is that real building of community and powerful storytelling and the amazing platforms that exist now that allow us to do that. But I'm interested in your perspectives on that. And when you say you don't use Facebook, there's obviously really good, I mean, there's many reasons why people don't use Facebook, but do you mind sharing a little bit about your perspectives on that and your reasoning behind that? Cambridge Analytica. (laughs) So it's around data and privacy and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have, there was a period that I went through a number of years ago where I really recognised how detrimental social media playing out in my own personal life and how it was, what sort of role it was playing in my life was, it was just really, it was a moment where I was super aware of how disconnected I was becoming to my community and real people and yeah, you can have really great connections and it's incredible like through social media and I, you know, have wouldn't have been able to do this work internationally without I mean, I could have done this work without social media internationally, but it would have been would have been harder. And I have to say, you know, that I have a really broad, strong network of indigenous peoples that I don't connect with very often now because I don't use social media. So, yeah, there is, but we only have so much capacity to have real meaningful connections, like real engagement and genuine connections in our life. Like we're, as humans, we only have capacity also to take in so much information and also trauma, you know, so I don't watch the news. I know that's really hard sometimes because I'm quite disconnected, but I'm coming from a, you know, like a media background, I'm also super critical of the way that, information is constructed the horror show that it is and how much impact that has on a human being and the capacity to deal with that trauma you know and we've got enough as aboriginal people we've got enough of that we're dealing with that intergenerational trauma we don't need another bombardment of that in our in our lives and so i purposely don't engage with that i read the news but i'm very mindful of what i take in and how much i can handle and then also with connections with in regards to social media, I'm much more interested in building real connections, real relationships and the positivity of those relationships through real time engaging, you know, the old school way. Yeah. 
Wow. Thank you so much, Angie, for your time today and for sharing so generously about the work that you're doing. I know that others will be just as inspired and fascinated seems like the wrong word, but that is the word that is in my mind. So I'm just fascinated about the work that you're doing and I can't wait to see how that evolves over time. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you, Kate. Do you want to just let people know how they can get in touch with you if people would like to yeah. follow up and get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, through our website, which is oldwaysnew.com, there's an information contact page there. That's the easiest way. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Angie. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Kate. Thank you for joining us on the Social Lights podcast produced by Social Mediology. You can connect with us on Facebook at Social Lights Podcast and you can find today's show notes and more episodes at socialmediology.com.au forward slash social lights. Please subscribe in your favourite podcast platform to receive future episodes and share with your tribe to inspire others to action.